All right. If you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to find Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. All right, this summer we have been going through the book of Ephesians, uh, but we took a two-week break, uh, and we had a chance over the last two weeks to hear um, from both of our church planters that are planting new locations for us. So if you didn't know this, we have a little bit of a different model of a church. We kind of say that we're one church, and we have multiple locations of it. Um, and so even though each one of those churches has their own pastor that is preaching their own message, uh, the church has its own kind of identity and culture, but at the same time, if you were to leave here and go walk into Sox Center, uh, I think you would feel a lot of the same things. We have a lot of the same vision and stuff like that. And so we are planting a church in the BBE area. That's Bruton, Belgrade, El Rosa. All right, and that church is kind of already going with a little bit of a soft launch, and so we heard from Pastor Mitch Wall uh, two weeks ago as he kind of shared about that, and then last week we got to hear from Pastor Tyler Kinzer, and they are going to be planting in St. Joseph, all right, and this is brand new. It has not started yet. They're hoping to start at the beginning of 2024, uh, so we got to hear his heart for the town, and then he just shared a message with us, and so last two weeks were great, uh, but because we kind of took those two weeks off from Ephesians, I want to just remind us a little bit uh, of where we are in this, okay? Uh, so this is a letter sent from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, uh, but to the best of our knowledge, it was kind of meant uh, to be circulated among other churches that were in the area. So because of that, this letter, unlike some of the other letters that are a lot more specific, they might be talking to very specific situations. Uh, this one's a little bit more generalized. Instead of instead of kind of drilling down on very specific issues that the church was having because it was meant to be kind of passed around, all right? So most of the letters in the New Testament, even though they feel a little sporadic, I think sometimes as we read through them, uh, they actually have several main topics or ideas or themes that can be traced through most of the letter. Uh, and Ephesians is no exception to that. Uh, the biggest theme that we will see, but it doesn't really show up a whole lot yet, is the theme of unity. Okay, unity, like Ephesians is all about unity, um, but we're going to see that more in the second half of the letter, okay, because the first half of the letter, it focuses on almost like retelling the gospel story. Now, not a very like, I think sometimes we've oversimplified what the gospel is to just this idea of like Jesus died, was raised again, that's the gospel. Uh, the gospel is so much more than that. It's this big rescue plan that God has had uh, in motion for so long. And so he's kind of retelling the gospel story in the first half here. But he's doing it in a way where he's inviting uh, the people in Ephesus, and he'd be inviting us, anyone who would read this, to kind of step into that story and to see ourselves as part of this story. All right, and then the second half, he's going to talk about this idea of how everything has, uh, like everything about God's rescue plan has been moving towards Jesus. That Jesus is the climax of this story, and that after that, then the establishment of the church is where this really comes together. And so Paul is going to spend a lot of time talking about the church coming together from all different backgrounds. All right, all different kind of races and traditions and all these things. And that's why we are going to see unity be stressed so importantly uh, kind of during this. All right, so that's, that's kind of what the overall letter looks like. Um, but some of the things that we saw over the first three weeks in this letter, uh, some of the focuses uh, in the greeting, we saw Paul greet them in a way uh, that highlights that, that he and the Ephesians um, and us, by transfer, are called to live set apart from the rest of the world. Okay, like we should look 
different. We should act different. We should live differently from the rest of the world. And this is a hard balancing act uh, to live for Jesus and to not be distracted and yet at the same time not completely disengaged from the world because we're called to walk in between those two lines. Like we are supposed to be solely focused on him and yet not like be like, okay, we're going to all go live together out in the desert and have a commune and just detach from the world. Like that's not what he wants us to do necessarily. And so we need to walk this line of doing both of those. And then um, the next week in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, Paul begins to retell some key stories from God's rescue plan. And he's inviting the readers again to see themselves as, as part of these stories and part of this entire plan. And then the third week, the last week that we were talking about Ephesians, we were reading about Paul's praying that Jesus' followers would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, is what he says. And he says that, I want you to pray for this, and if you are given this spirit of wisdom and revelation, that it's going to result in these other things happening in your life. And he talks through these three other things, um, that when we begin to understand this and we see things the way Jesus sees them, uh, that specifically that we will have the power the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. And in that moment, you kinda, you're sitting there and you're like, wow, that's, that seems like a lot of power. And now Paul's not trying to connect this to like this cosmic power that God has. Okay, you and I cannot create things out of nothing. It's not a power that we have. But instead, the power that we're supposed to associate ourselves with and see in this is the power to bring life. And that may sound silly, but think about this. Like, we live in a world that is constantly, constantly bringing death and destruction all around us. And so for us to have the power to bring life into situations, into people, into our own life like this, it matters. It matters. Um, and I think that that could mean that at times God wants to work through believers to bring about even things like that we would call miraculous moments. But to boil it down just to a power to do miraculous things would be to shortchange what Paul is getting at here and it'd be to shortchange the power that God has given us and how he wants to partner with us. So let's continue in chapter 2 here um, and I want us to just be excited and be ready and be expecting that God has something for us today that he wants to meet with us today. Uh, God's presence is here. It's always here uh, and it goes with you when you leave here. All right, but whether you actually acknowledge that or engage with God and whether you are changed by it, that is completely up to you. All right, like God doesn't force anything on us. And so if we want to just come here and sit here today and just listen and not engage with God, like we have that option. But I want to challenge us. Let's, let's make sure that we actually are stepping in and saying, God, I, I want to engage with you. I want to hear from you. I want to be changed by you. So if we could do this, um, I, I would love if we would be able to just stand together if you're willing and able. Uh, I want to open us in prayer, all right? Uh, and then we are going to jump into the passage shortly after that. Normally I read it here, then we pray. I'm going to do that in just a moment, all right? So uh, God, we just ask that in this time together, Lord, that, that we would be changed. God, that every single time we open your word, that we would expect that there is something in us that needs to change, that we haven't figured this out yet, that we, we haven't arrived, we aren't perfect, there's still so many things that need to change in us. So God, we pray that today uh, that you would just continue that process in each and every one of us. 
God, speak to us in a way that uh, maybe we just begin to feel certain things of, oh, I need to change this in my life or I need to change that, God. We know that the way that you speak to every person is, is different. And so we don't want to put you in a box and think that it has to be done a certain way. But God, we, we do want to look more like you, grow closer to you. So Lord, we ask that. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. All right, I want to I read our passage like I normally would. Um, but what I want to do is I want to kind of take um, some of the themes that we've already seen, all right, that I kind of just got done listing off. I want us to take some of those themes. And as we read through this passage, I want us to look for those themes in this passage, okay? And so this is a little bit different, and that's why I wanted to kind of push it a little bit further um, in here and kind of take our time with this, uh, because this is an important skill. Like as we become more mature believers, as we grow closer to God, as we dive into his word, it should be so much more than just, okay, I'm going to read this one verse, and what do I feel like this one verse is saying to me today? Now, what's amazing about the Bible and what's amazing about God is we can do that, and God can still move and challenge us. But the reality is that it's kind of a stunted way of approaching Scripture. All right, so what I want to do this morning is I want to just walk through with you guys exactly what I kind of did this week as I was sitting down with this passage. Um, we're going to read through it, and I'm going to read through each section, and after each section, I'm going to say, okay, where do you see these themes? So I have some themes that are going to be up on the screen, okay, that we've talked about over the last uh, few weeks here, that, that we are called to be set apart from the world, all right, that we are part of God's big rescue plan, that, that there's this glorious inheritance that is waiting for us. All right, and then that we have the power of life, not death. Like these are some main themes that we've seen in the first chapter. Now let's read chapter two with those in our mind, all right, because Paul is incredibly specific when he chooses his words, all right, and we are going to continue to see themes like this show up in scripture, all right, so let's, let's kind of read this uh, together here, starting in verse one of chapter two. It says, once you are dead... Because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. All right, so what do you see there? What do you kind of see as far as these themes, like just in this spot already? All right, so I want to I show you some of the themes that I see, and they're going to be highlighted in the same color that the theme is, okay? So at the beginning, once you were dead, like right away, remember, we have this power of life, not death. We are drawn from this place of being dead into a place of life. It says like the rest of the world. But remember, we're not supposed to be like the rest of the world. We're supposed to be set apart. He says you used to live that way. Again, pointing out that picture of being drawn into the world, um, and then at the end, again, those words, just like everyone else. Like, so can we see, like, Paul is using repetition here. He's trying to take these themes that we've already seen, and we are going to see those all the way through the book. And I'm not going to do this every single week. All right, but I want to challenge you. As you go through the book of Ephesians or any of these books, when you see themes, especially in the first chapter, the first chapter of these letters will often lay out some big themes that they want to cover. Begin to trace those. Maybe take a couple different color highlighters and, and do something like that right in your margins, all right? So let's, let's keep going here to the, to the second part. It said, but God is so rich in mercy 
And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. All right. Hopefully right away you start to see some of these themes. So let's kind of see the ones that I, that I put in there. So we have, but God is so rich in mercy. Remember, that mercy is what's leading to this entire rescue plan that's going on of trying to, to reestablish God and creation, that relationship from the beginning. And he says, we were dead. Okay, again, power of life, not death. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. Raised us from the dead. Seated us with him. Now remember, this is that glorious inheritance that he says, when you begin to have that spirit of wisdom and revelation, there's going to be things that you begin to understand better. And one of them was this glorious inheritance that we have. So seated us with him, that glorious inheritance. We are united with Christ Jesus. All right, let's keep going. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are anointed with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. All right, let's see what themes we kind of see in here. All right, so you can connect those. You see the different colors there, the different things that are being said. We have almost all the themes in this one. And really, some of these, like, they, they overlap. Some of the themes are kind of very similar to each other. So as you see these, as we talk about the glorious inheritance that's waiting, it's, it's kind of this idea of life and not death, that this isn't the end, that there is this glorious inheritance. And so a lot of these themes are going to overlap each other. All right? And this is, this is how we are meant to kind of read Scripture. We don't always see this. I have to really put in work to sit down and be like, all right, what am I seeing here? But for first century readers, as they would read through this, some of the language that's being used in Hebrew, they would immediately associate that with other themes earlier in the book or even other themes that were in other spots of Scripture. Especially when you're talking New Testament, going back to the Old Testament. And they would have all these things where they'd hear a word and immediately think of all these different things. All right, okay, last little chunk here. It says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now my hope is, is that at this point, we're in our fourth little chunk here, that you already can see themes in there. And I'll tell you what, this one, I think I highlighted like every single word almost. Yep, okay, basically. And I even threw in a different color there at the end, and I'll say why. But like you can see this, like Paul right here at the end of this little chunk, he is just packing it filled with language of everything he's already said. He's like, I want to make sure you guys get this. And at the end, I have purple because uh, there really was, there was another part uh, that I didn't put up here as one of our themes. But, but Paul said, when you have the wisdom and revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, he said that, that you'll begin to understand a few different things. This is what we talked about the last time uh, we were in, in the book of Ephesians. And one of them was that we are called to a hope. We are called to something. And so in this last verse, so we can do good things he planned for us long ago. Like there is something, there is a purpose. There is, there is something that we are called to. All right, and that was absolutely one of the themes that was in there. And it just like, you can see Paul just beautifully weave all of this together. 
in an amazing way. All right? And, and I love seeing this from Paul and, and his co-authors in this letter, like that they've beautifully pulled this all together. All right? And so I wanted to do that right away at the beginning here. And I want to challenge you. Begin to learn how to do this and try this. Challenge yourself. Say, okay, what themes have I seen? Can I, can I follow those through this letter? Can I follow those through Scripture? Uh, it's it's going to highlight things that you probably never would have seen before in Scripture. But all right, let's, let's, let's jump into the 10 verses we have today. And what I'm going to do is it's kind of in three sections. And I'm going to walk us through each one of those sections with a little bit of an application from each one of those. Okay, so in the first three verses that we had here today, uh, he's making a point. All right, there are multiple ways that we can choose to live. Paths that you can go down. And, and, and don't think of paths as like super specific. I think especially for me, as a young adult, I really struggled with this idea that God had this like perfect path that I had to figure out. And if I stepped off that path, my life was going to be terrible. All right? Like I had to figure out and every little decision came down to it. I mean, not quite to the point of like, God, what cereal am I supposed to eat this morning? But it wasn't far off from that. All right? Like where you're just like, God, I need you to direct every single step. Um, and th that's not really, I think, what Paul's going for in the path here. He's kind of saying, listen, like there's several different ways that you can choose to live your life. All right? And one way of living is the way that God would have intended for his image bearers, that's us, we bear his image, for his image bearers to live. And then you have all these other ways to live that would be reinforced by the fallen world that is around you. All right? And Paul is saying that humans, when left to their own natural desires in a fallen world, will pick the ways of the world. Like, that, that's what's natural for us. And in a way, he's almost giving like a little bit of, I don't want to use the word excuse, uh, but that's the wrong wording. But he, he's sort of saying like, it's understandable when you make mistakes. Because, he says in verse 3, like, he's saying the natural way of our own passions and sinful desires. He's saying like, both your mind and your body, they want to draw you this way. And if that isn't enough to lead us astray, he says the powers of the enemy, the powers of Satan, the powers of the unseen realm, they are actively working against you. So not only are you fighting against you, but you have other, other entities fighting against you. Okay, so everything inside of you is going to pull you away from God then the powers of the enemy are trying to pull you away from God as well. And then, by the way, the whole world, everything around you, is going to reaffirm your poor choices. Because that's how the world is. And, and so he's like, no wonder things are going poorly. Like, the deck is stacked against you in every possible way. Like, you are trying to make yourself screw up. Satan's trying to make you screw up. The world's trying to make you screw up. Like, everything around you. Like, this is a difficult, borderline hopeless situation. All right? And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Sinful nature twists God's creation into something that is self-serving and would draw us away from him. All right? Now, I first had this worded differently. I first had it worded as everything in this world is pulling you away from what God would want for you. But I don't like that wording because what it does is it takes creation, which God, remember, said was good, and it makes creation inherently evil. And I don't think that's the case. And I think that when we do that, we make a mistake, thinking that everything around us, all of creation is evil and pulling us away from God. 
No, it's actually sinful nature that has come in. And sinful nature takes what God said, hey, that's good, and it twists it. And it says, well, yeah, maybe that's good, but, you know, we could make this better for you. And that's what sinful nature kind of does, all right? So I don't want us to, like, demonize God's creation that he said was good. Because not everything is evil. Like, think about this. Like, money is not inherently evil. But can it draw us away from God? Absolutely. And I don't think, for the most part, anyone in this room is going to argue that, that money can absolutely draw us away from God. Okay, think about this. Like, family is great. Family's amazing. Can we make family an idol that draws us away from God? Absolutely. And I think that as, as I've been watching culture, and specifically like church culture in America, I feel like we're moving in a direction where family is becoming more and more of an idol. All right, now, and that's a hard thing for us to figure out because family is so good. It's so good. And it's really hard to see when good things have become idols. Because it's so easy for us to justify that we're doing this for God or that there's like, this is part of God's natural order and stuff. But remember, God's like, no, I, I'm number one. Everything else, everything else should be so far in second place that he says, comparatively, it would look like you would hate your family compared to how much you love me. He's not saying you hate your family. He's saying comparatively, that's how big that gap should be. And I think family has found its way into becoming an idol in America. Paul goes on um, and, and he says this. I love this in the next little section of, of scripture. He says, but God. All right, like he just got done painting this almost borderline hopeless situation that everything is just falling short. Everything, the deck is stacked against you. Everyone is coming against you. You're coming against you. Um, like there's just almost no way to make this work. And then he immediately, as he shifts from that little paragraph, that wording, he switches in, and I love the first two words here, but God. You're set up for failure, but God. When everything should lead us away from him, he made a way for us to be with him. He made a way for us to overcome. And this is such great news here. Like in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul says a few famous lines uh, in chapter 8. And he says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, Paul just got done saying, who can be against us? Everybody. Absolutely everybody. People you can see, people you can't see. And by the way, you, you are against you as well. All right, but like we have to like hold these in tension. And, and he's saying like, okay, but... God. But if God is on your side, who can be against you? It doesn't matter that everything around us is pulling us away. If God is for us, there's always a way. And a few verses later in Romans 8, uh, he actually says this. He says, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. And then it goes into this famous section where it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's this, this beautiful section. And so one of the things that weighs on me heavy as a believer um, and especially as a pastor, is, is how many people outside the church link me to the idea of church. Like that I am the representative, I am the example of what, of what church is. Like if, if you are the only Christian that someone knows, everything you say and do, they now think that that's how all Christians are, how the church is. 
Okay, and like that's a heavy weight to carry. And worse than that, worse than being linked to the church, uh, you know, or all of Christianity is actually being linked to Jesus. Right? Like when someone watches me and how I act and the fact that I screw up a lot, all right, and then all of a sudden they think that, okay, well, I'm watching him and, and he's a Christian or he's a pastor or whatever it is. And they're like, so that must be how Jesus is. That, that's what you think. And I'm like, oh, that weight is so heavy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anyone else ever feel that weight of people around you looking at you and looking uh, as an example in this? And, and Paul right here, like he's heavily linking believers with Jesus. Okay, he says twice, we are united with Christ. And he is doing this on purpose. He's linking us to Jesus. But when he does it, and he says, um, when he says that, uh, it, it, that this is somehow how God views us, linked with Jesus. And what the, the amazing miracle here is, it doesn't bring Jesus down to my level. Okay, like it does in the eyes of the world. When they look at me, and it brings Jesus down to my level. When God looks at me, he brings me up to Jesus' level. How amazing is that? Like, that's Paul is trying to link us together, and I'm sitting there being like, oh, no, please don't. I don't, I don't want to be linked to Jesus. This is so much weight, so much responsibility. Oh, I'm going to make Jesus look bad. And God's like, no, forget about that. Jesus makes you look good. And that, that's what's happening in his eyes, that we are brought up. And, and again, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't, I don't feel like I deserve that. In fact, I know that I don't deserve that. But that's how God treats it. That's how he sees it. So these words, but God, like that's how he treats us. We have this inheritance that we don't deserve. And what's crazy is, is again, this, this has nothing to do with what you or I have done. God is the primary agent in this. He is the one doing this. Like Jesus paved the way. And because we are in Jesus, that's the words that Paul would use uh, in a lot of his letters. He says, you are in Jesus. You are connected with Jesus. You are part, you are linked. You are united with Jesus. All right, because of that, we get this thing that we, that we don't deserve. We are afforded everything that Jesus has. In God's eyes, whatever is true of Jesus is, is true of us when we've made that decision. And that, wow, wow. That is, that's the reality of the gospel, and it is so hard to wrap my head around. Like, how did we just go from the world is stacked against us, and we don't really have any hope to do this right, to all of a sudden God has perfectly paved the way for us, even though we don't deserve it. There, there's no way for me to do this on my own. But he has made a way, and all I have to do is believe. I went from I can't succeed to I can't fail. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Because of what Jesus has done, when we believe, we are united with Jesus in God's eyes. Now, this is an incredibly basic statement. All right? the basic truth of the gospel. And yet it is so profound and mind-blowing that we miss it, that we take this for granted. In what world could I ever be associated with Jesus and it actually elevates me instead of diminishing him? And yet that's, that's the world that we live in. That, that should blow your mind. It should. 
And then Paul, in this last section, he doubles down on these two ideas in those last couple verses. He is reminding everyone there isn't anything you did to receive this. And what is cool about this is it means that no one is more deserving than someone else. Okay, and this is an important point to make uh, because Paul, remember like who he's writing to and where he's going to go in the next few chapters. He's going to talk about bringing everybody together, no matter what your background is. And he's going to say, no one is more deserving than someone else. And remember the history here. You have both Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people, for their entire history, they were God's chosen people. All right, so for the Jewish people, they were always elevated above all the other people groups around them. And then inside of the Jewish community, they would elevate themselves against each other based off of how well they could keep the law. They had all of these outward badges of honor, um, circumcision, how well they kept the Sabbath, how strict they were with food laws, uh, how they would tithe things, even like their spices. You know, they're like, oh yeah, you might keep the tithe, but do you count out every single granule of salt? that you have in your shaker and then take 10% of that and set it aside and bring it to the church because I do. I mean, they would constantly be measuring up against each other. There's always this, who is more deserving? And what Paul is doubling down on here and he needs to before he goes into the, the remainder of this book, he is saying, listen, none of you deserve this and there is nothing you can do to deserve it. You don't deserve this. With this new way of looking at it, no one person deserves it more than another. And God isn't handing it out based on merit. Like there, there's nothing you can do to be more deserving. You all get it equally, nothing on the front end of it. But when we receive this gift, then we control how we respond to it. We control whether we live in a way that honors the gift that we have been given. Because he said he created us anew in Christ Jesus. And then what's the, the next word right there? He says he, he created us anew in Christ Jesus. So. So means that there, there's a purpose. There's a reason. The gift that we were given, it serves a purpose. And that purpose is to do good things that he planned for us long ago. Okay, what does that mean? What did he plan for us long ago? Well, when we talk about the purpose of humans, all right, we see at the very beginning that God gave purpose to his creation prior to sin entering the world. And then sin entered the world and God gave us another purpose. And those two purposes, those very generalized purposes, still ring true for every single one of us today. And we might have other purposes inside of that. We might have more specific ways of accomplishing it. But those two purposes, they... They ring true, all right? And so the first one, we, we were called to partner with God and steward the creation. Think back to the creation story. He makes man and he says, okay, we're partnering in this and I want you to rule and reign over creation. Now remember, that is, I, I like always bringing in the word steward because steward means like you're taking care of it in a way because often rule and reign can sound like a tyrant, and that this is ours and we get to do whatever we want with it. And that, that's not how God intended this. That we are to steward what this is. For many people, when we talk about caring for the world or, or taking care of it, not destroying it, I think they often immediately go political. 
Like, well, oh yeah, there's a lot of political people that get real loud about that, that we need to take better care of the earth and, and all these different things. All right, like, listen, that, that is sinful nature twisting God's creation again. Like, we are called to care for his creation. Stop. Full stop. We are called to care for his creation. Christians should be some of the loudest voices when it comes to caring for his creation. But because we have allowed politics to over shadow so many things in our walk and in our life and we've allowed that to become political that we take a stance on it based on politics instead of saying wow on page one of the bible like i am called to steward this creation and to take care of it but it isn't just taking care of creation in an environmental way like all of this is god's creation people as well and in a world of destruction and taking life we are called to bring life We are called to bring life. The second thing, the second purpose, after the fall, after sin, after people were divided from their creator, how can people partner with God if they don't know him? If they are divided from their creator, and our entire purpose as as his image bearers is to partner with him and to work with him in this creation, how are people supposed to accomplish that purpose if they don't know him? And so we see God meet with Abraham and create this covenant and say, I'm going to work through you. And through you, everyone else is going to be blessed. You're going to know me on a different level, but I don't want it to stop there. You're going to take it to others, and others are then going to know me on a different level. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. And so we have this second purpose that comes into motion there. We have a relationship with God so that we can bring that relationship to others. So last thing here, if you're taking notes. When we are united with Jesus, we must now engage with the world in a way that would draw all of creation closer to God. That's what we're called to do. And when we do this, when we draw people closer to God, remember we are counteracting the effect of the very first thing we wrote down today. Then what does sinful nature do? Sinful nature twists God's creation to draw people away from God. What are we called to do? We are called to draw people closer to God, to engage with his creation in a healthy way, in a God-honoring way, in the way that he intended us to do that will draw people in. So stewarding creation the way he intended does that. Introducing people to their creator does that. If you felt like you don't have purpose, uh, I want to tell you this. Stop trying to chase the perfect job or the perfect family or the perfect life and instead just pursue the only one who is perfect, Jesus. And in doing this, you will come alive in your purpose. Things will become real. You will become aware of things that you otherwise would not have. So let's do this. Would you, would you stand with me as we just kind of reach a place of closing? Jesus should radically transform our lives. My life should be radically different because of Jesus. Your life should be radically different because of Jesus. He gives this picture of like a, of a hopeless life 
Paul does here that has now been flipped upside down because of something that we don't deserve and yet we were given. And all of this is difficult when we have forgotten that we were actually saved from something. Like, in order to understand the end of this passage that we looked at today, we have to first understand the first three verses of how hopeless our situation was. Because when we forget about that, then we stop to care about the ending of those verses. We have to remember how hopeless this was, that we needed saving, that our lives would be a mess without Jesus. And so one of my favorite verses, Psalm 51, 12, it says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And you see this picture here of this like stubborn person who's like, God, I, everything inside of me, everything in the world around me, everything in the enemy wants to pull me away from you. Instead, I want you to just kind of force me into this, like restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me remember that I was actually saved from something, that I needed you, that my life was a mess without you. And for many followers of Jesus, it was so long ago that they started following him that they have lost that spark that they once had and now it is just routine. And they go to church not because they long to gather together and worship God together, but because it's just what they do on Sunday mornings. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me remember how how happy I was to hear that you made a way for me to have a relationship with you. That my life doesn't have to be hopeless. That, That even though I don't deserve anything, you gave me everything that my life was flipped upside down and changed forever. I've had a song on repeat this last week. It's just called, You Saved Me. Came on this morning during prayer. And it's about the most simple song you'll ever hear. There's maybe two or three lines in the song. And it's just over and over, this idea of, you saved me. You saved me. And for me, I, I need that reminder so often. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so I want to end with a simple but incredibly challenging question or thought for us, okay? And here's what it is. How would your life look different if you weren't following Jesus? Like, think about this. And and maybe for you, maybe this happened recent enough that you actually don't have to go that far back in your memory to think about how life looked different. Maybe you have to go a long ways back Maybe you actually have to imagine this because you've spent your entire life in a Christian family and you don't really know. And and honestly, for those people, that can be the hardest thing to say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me remember that I was saved from something because it's become so routine or, or it's easy to become routine. Now, I want us to actually think about it. Like, If he flips our life upside down, if we are radically changed, then our life should look very different. Okay, so think about some of these things. I'm going to list off some areas. Think about how your life would be different if you weren't following Jesus, okay? So just pretend right now. Pretend you never made this decision. Pretend this is not a relationship you have in your life. How would your life look different? Okay, when it comes to your demeanor and how you interact with people or your attitude, the the direction of your life and how you're living, Uh, the focus of what you desire and what you want to accomplish in this life. The way that you interact with family and friends. 
the way that you budget and spend money, would that look different if you weren't following Jesus? The way that you spend your free time and weekends, the content that you ingest throughout the week, whether that's listening to stuff or watching stuff or reading stuff, how would that look different if you didn't follow Jesus? The way that you vote, the way that you take care of your body and mind, the way you take care of the world around you, would it look different if you didn't follow Jesus? Do they look different from your friends who don't follow Jesus? Or are they just slightly nicer and friendlier? All right, if your version of Christianity is you're slightly nicer, slightly friendlier, and yeah, maybe a little bit different, but honestly, I don't know, I'm just kind of a good person. Like, I think that there should be a drastic difference in some of these areas. But for some of us, maybe our life doesn't look very different. Things haven't really changed. We haven't changed. And I'm going to make a really bold statement here. All right? If your life wouldn't look that different, if you weren't following Jesus, then maybe you aren't actually following him. If you go through those and you say, I don't know, I think the way I treat people, the way I do all these things, I I think it would kind of look the same. And yet we say that Jesus radically changes us. Are we radically changed enough? Like, if it wouldn't look different, are we actually following this absolute crazy guy that lived a completely different way from the world? Or are we just kind of trying to be a little bit of a better person and Jesus is along for the ride with us? I want to close us in prayer and I want us just to kind of, this week, my challenge, spend some time thinking through this idea. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do we remember that we were saved from something? Do we remember how messed up our life would be without him? Or do we feel like, I don't know, my life still seems pretty messed up. Okay, well, let's, let's process that. Let's think through that. You know, because we aren't promised a perfect life. That's not what I'm saying. But is there this purpose that is focused on him? Jesus, I pray right now, Lord, for every single one of us in this room. God, and I'm starting this prayer for me. I think of how many times in a typical week that I screw up. God, I think about the the fight that I had last night with my wife, and it was all my fault because I am a turd. (laughs) God, and so often I don't feel like I... I should be put in the same category as you, that I should be seen united or connected with you. But God, this way that you see us, that that you don't, it doesn't diminish who Jesus is. God, instead, it elevates who we are and the way that you see us and just how amazing of a miracle that is. God, and I just, I, I pray that for every single one of us this week, Lord, that we would just find that joy of your salvation again. God, that we would be changed drastically by this relationship with you. God, that when others look at us, that they don't have to watch for more than just a couple minutes to say, wow, something is different about that person. They aren't like everybody else around me. 
God, that we would be able to live in that type of a way. God, challenge us today. Lord, highlight those areas where we're falling short. Not so that we can feel worthless, but so that we can know that, God, you've still made a way despite those shortcomings. And we want to take that way. We want to follow you. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.